Section 19 of the Roman Empire of the Second Century by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8 The Literary Currents of the Age. Part 1. The period of the Antonines abounded with libraries and schools and authors, with a reading public and all the outward tokens of an educated love of letters never has there been more enthusiasm for high culture more careful study of the graces of a literary style more critical acquaintance with good models more interchange of sympathy between professors of the different schools and yet there were but scanty harvests from all this intellectual husbandry there was no creative thought evolved no monument of consummate art was reared no conquest of original research achieved the scribendi cacoetes the mania for scribbling poured forth vast quantities of literary matter but most of it fell at once stillborn and much of what remains has little value for us now save to illustrate the conditions of the times the men are of more interest to us than their literary works there was colour and variety in the features of their social status there were curious analogies to the history of later days but we are likely to gather from their writings rather a series of literary portraits than ideas to enrich the thought and fancy or models of art to guide our taste the culture of the age was mainly greek hellenic influence had spread long since far into the east among the populous towns of asia minor it ruled entirely without a rival it had pushed its way through syria and almost to the line of the euphrates while it held many an outpost of civilized life in the colonies planted long ago among the ruder races of the north through all of these the liberal studies were diffused and in their schools the language of demosthenes was spoken with little loss of purity and grace from them as well as from athens and her neighbours came the instructors who taught the western world from them came the newest literary wares and the ruling fashions of the season and even in countries such as gaul where rome had stamped so forcibly the impress of her language and her manners scholars who hoped for influence beyond a narrow local circle often wrote and thought in greek as the speech of the whole civilized world the old roman tongue grew rapidly more feeble and less pure with few exceptions the learned declined to write in it and an emperor as we have seen even in the memoirs written for no eye save his own expressed his deepest thoughts and feelings not in latin but in greek the career of a man of letters was chiefly professional and his works were meant more for the ear than for the eye his sphere of action commonly was found in lectures conferences public readings panegyrics debates and intellectual tournaments of every kind for the scholars of those days were not content to stay home and be prophets to their countrymen alone or to trust to written works to spread their fame but they travelled far away from land to land and ever as they went they practised their ready wit and fluent tongue like their prototypes in earlier days the rivals of socrates and the objects of the scorn of plato they were known by the old name of sophist which implied their claim to be learned if not to be wise and the term was used without reproach of the most famous of their number whose lives were written by philostratus citizens of the world 
and self-styled professors in the widespread university of culture they found full liberty of speech and an eager audience in every town for though the times were changed many of the habits of the old republics lingered still and though the stormy debates of politics were silenced and the thunders of the orators of old were heard no more still the art of public speech was passionately prized and men were trained even from their childhood to study the grace and power of language and to crave some novel form of intellectual stimulus so when the travelling sophist was heard of in their midst the townsmen flocked with curious ears about the stranger as the crowd gathered around paul upon mars's hill eager to hear and tell of some new thing sometimes it was a scholar of renown who came with a long train of admirers for young and old went far afield in search of knowledge and attached themselves for years to a great teacher like the students of the middle ages who passed in numbers from one famous university of europe to another attracted by the name of some great master then the news passed along the streets and time and place were fixed for a lecture of display the magistrates came in state to do the speaker honour and even an emperor at times deigned to look on and set the example of applause with his own hands sometimes a young aspirant came in search of laurels to challenge to a trial of skill the veteran whose art was thought by his countrymen to be beyond compare sometimes came one with all the enthusiasm of a new-found truth to maintain some striking paradox to advocate a moral system or some fresh canon of literary taste like the great schoolmen of the age of dante or the admirable pico of a later time they posted up the theses which they would hold against all comers and were ready in their infinite presumption to discourse of all the universe of thought and being de omni scribili et ente and when weary of the sameness of the scholar's life wandered like knights errant round the world in search of intellectual adventures sometimes it was a poor vagrant with a tattered mantle who gathered a crowd round him in the streets and declaimed with rude energy against the luxury and wantonness of the life of cities bidding men look within them for the sources of true happiness and worthy manhood like the preaching friars of the christian church they appealed to every class without distinction startling the careless by their examples of unworldliness and striking often on the chords of higher feeling as they spoke to the rich and noble in the plain language of uncourtly warning yet often the cynic's mantle was only a disguise for sturdy beggars disgusting decent folks by their importunate demands and dragging good names and high professions through the mire of sensuality and lust the name of sophist was applied in common speech to two great classes which rivals as they were for popular esteem and scornful as was each of the pretensions of the other were yet alike in many of the features of their social life and were scarcely distinguished from each other by the world the first included the professional moralists and high thinkers who claimed to have a rule of active life or a theory of eternal truth which might be of infinite value to their fellow-men philosophy had somewhat changed its aims and methods since the great systems of original inquiry had parted the schools of greece among them the old names indeed of platonist and peripatetic epicurean and stoic still were heard 
but the boundary lines were growing fainter and the doctrines of each were losing the sharpness of their former outlines philosophy had lost the keenness of her dialectic the vigour and boldness of her abstract reasoning she had dropped her former subtlety and was spending all her energy of thought and action on the great themes of social duty she aspired and not quite in vain to be the great moral teacher of mankind she stepped into the place which heathen religion long had left unfilled and claimed to be the directress of the consciences of men when the old barriers were levelled to the ground when natural law and local usages and traditional standards became effaced or passed away before the levelling action of the imperial unity when servile flattery began to abdicate the claims of manhood and to acknowledge no source of law and right but the caprices of an absolute monarch philosophy alone began on sure foundations to raise the lines of moral order philosophy alone was heard to plead in the name of dignity and honour she left the shadow of the schools the quiet groves of academe the gardens and the porch and came out into the press and throng of busy life under every variety of social guise she furnished her lecturers of renown holding chairs with endowments from the state and speaking with the authority of men of science she had her spiritual advisers for great houses living like domestic chaplains in constant attendance on the wealthy and well-born there were father confessors for the ruler's ear rivalling in influence the ladies of the imperial household there were physicians of the soul who had little social circles of which they were the oracles guiding the actions of their friends sometimes by confidential letters sometimes by catechetical addresses while at times their familiar table talk was gathered up for private use in the diaries of admiring pupils missionaries travelled in her name from town to town with hardy courage and unvarnished phrase like the mendicant friars of later days speaking to the people mainly in the people's tongue and denouncing the lust of the eye and the pride of life in the spirit of christian ascetics the greatest among the heathen moralists of the age was epictetus the new-bought slave for that is the meaning of the only name by which history knows him early exchanged his phrygian home for the mansion of a roman master who seems to have been a vulgar soul cringing to the powerful and haughty to the weak and who treated him probably with little kindness even if he did not as one version of the story runs break his slave's leg in a freak of wanton jest yet strange as it may seem his master sent the lame and sickly youth to hear the lessons of the most famous of the stoic teachers intending him perhaps for literary labour because he was too weak for other work the pupil made good use of the chances offered him and when in after years he gained his freedom he ruled his life in all things by the system of his choice proving in the midst of his patient brave and unobtrusive poverty how fully he had mastered all the doctrines of the porch no cell of christian monk was ruder than his simple bedroom of which the only furniture was a pallet bed and iron lamp and when the latter was taken by a thief it was replaced by one of clay epictetus wrote no works and made no parade in public as a sage 
but he talked freely to his friends and admirers gathered round him by degrees to hear his racy earnest sermons on one moral question or another and some made notes of what he said and passed them on in their own circles till his fame at last spread far and wide beyond the range of personal acquaintance arian his devoted friend has left us two such summaries one a manual of his rule of life couched in brief and weighty words as of a general to his soldiers under fire the second a sort of table-talk which flowing on with less dogmatic rigour found tenderer and more genial tones to speak to the hearts of those who heard him he eschewed all subtleties of metaphysics all show of paradox or literary graces his thoughts were entirely transparent and sincere expressed in the homeliest of prose though varied now and then by bursts of rude eloquence and vivid figures of the fancy in them the whole duty of man according to the stoic system is put forth in the strongest and most consistent form and as such they were for centuries the counsellors and guides of thousands of self-centred resolute natures to bear and to forbear in season to have a noble disregard for all the passing goods of fortune and all which we cannot of ourselves control to gain an absolute mastery over will and temper thought and feeling which are wholly in our power to make reason sit enthroned within the citadel of self and let no fitful gusts of passion no mere brute instincts guide our action these in bare outlines are the dogmas of a creed which insists as few have ever done upon the strength and dignity of manhood true there are harsh words at times full of a stern ascetic rigour as when he bids men not to grieve for the loss of friend or wife or child and to let no foolish pity for the ills of any whom he loves cloud the serenity of the sage's temper rebuking grief he needs must banish love for grief itself is only love which feels the lack of what is torn away and without sympathy to stir us from our moods of lonely selfishness we should be merely animals of finer breed and subtler brain but epictetus could not trample out all feeling he rises even to a height of lyric fervour when he speaks of the providence of god of the moral beauty of his works and the strange insensibility of ungrateful men nor would he have his hearers rest content with the selfish hope of saving their own souls rather he would have them ever think of the human brotherhood and live not for themselves but for the world he falls into a vein of christian language when he speaks of the true philosopher as set apart by a special call anointed with the unction of god's grace to a missionary work of lifelong self-devotion as the apostle of a high social creed unconsciously perhaps he holds up the mirror to himself in this description and the rich colouring and impassioned fervour of the chapter redeem the austerity of his moral system the substance of some passages may serve perhaps to complete the brief sketch of his character and thought when asked to describe the nature of the ideal cynic he said that heaven's wrath would light on him who intruded rashly into a ministry so holy he called for an agamemnon to lead a host to troy none but achilles could face hector in the fight if a thersites had presumed to take that place he would have been thrust away in mockery or disgrace so let the would-be cynic try himself and count the cost before he starts for the campaign 
to wear a threadbare cloak is not enough something more is needed than to live hardly to carry staff and wallet and to be rude and unmannerly to all whose life seems too luxurious or self-indulgent it were an easy matter to do this but to keep a patient uncomplaining temper to root out vain desire and rise above the weakness of anger jealousy pity and every carnal appetite to make the sense of honour take the place of all the screens or safeguards of door and inner chamber to have no secrets to conceal no shrinking fear of banishment or death in the confidence of finding everywhere a home where sun and moon will shine and communion will be possible with heaven this is not an easy thing but to be able to do this is to be a philosopher indeed thus furnished for the work of life the true cynic will feel that he has a mission to be a preacher of the truth to erring men who know so little of what is really good or evil he is sent as a seer to learn the path of safety and as a prophet to warn his fellow-men of all their dangers it is for him to tell them the secret of true happiness that it does not lie in the comfort of the body nor in wealth nor high estate nor office nor in anything which lies exposed to the caprice of chance but only in the things which fall within the range of man's free will in his own domain of thought and action men ask indeed if any can be happy without the social blessings which they prize it is for the apostle of philosophy to show that homeless childless wifeless wanderer though he be with only a mantle on his body and the sky above his head he can yet enjoy entirest freedom from all anxiety and fear and from all the misery of a fretful temper but let no one rashly fancy that he is called to such a life without weighing well its duties and its dangers let him examine himself well and learn the will of god whose messenger he would claim to be outraged and buffeted he may be like a poor beast of burden but he must love his persecutors as his brethren for him there can be no appeal to caesar or to caesar's servants for he looks only to his sovereign in heaven and must bear patiently the trials which he sends him in a realm of perfect sages there would be no call into the mission field and all might innocently enjoy the pleasures of home life in peace but that soldier serves most cheerfully who has no cares of wife or household and the cynic who has felt the call to do god's work must forswear the blessings of the life of husband or a father must rise above the narrower range of civic duties remembering that all men are his brothers and his city is the world yet large as is the call upon his self-denial he should not aim at needless austerity or ascetic gloom there is no sanctity in dirt or vermin nothing to win souls or to attract the fancy in emaciated looks and a melancholy scowl nor is there any reason why the missionary must be a beggar epictetus saw no merit in hardships self-imposed nor would he have men turn from pleasure as from a traitor offering a kiss only he would have them able to part cheerfully with all save truth and honour in the spirit of pilgrims on the march as on a journey when the ship is lying at anchor thou mayest land to take in water and gather shells and the like upon the shore but must keep the vessel still in view and when the steersman beckons must leave all else at once to come on board so too in life's pilgrimage if wife lit or little one be given thee for a while it may be well but see to it 
that thou art ready when the pilot calls to come at once and turn not to look back end of section nineteen